The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Condition red? Huh? What about condition red for the new security protocol? Why don't you just call it security protocol? Well, it's not very dynamic. Do you think a cup holder is too much? Make your pardon? For the captain's chair. He just wanted the seat adjusted, but I figured, as long as I'm working on it. Just what the captain needs in a crisis. A place to rest his beverage. I'm also upgrading the status displays. He'll be able to access tactical data from the armrest. If you really want to improve tactical readiness, why don't you help me with this protocol? I'm a little busy right now, Malcolm. It's a chair. It's the captain's chair. It's just as important as your read alert. Read alert? That's not bad. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, April 5th, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Welcome once again to the show where the, fi- where the phone number to call us is 519-661-3600. And today we are going to be sounding a red alert from front to end of today's show, talking about how basically most of the philosophies of most of the parties are really on the left red side of the spectrum. And we'll be talking about the red situation on a more global scale. Robert will be talking about giving us a word or two on their true red baron, Karl Marx. Is that right, Robert? Karl Marx and Stephen Harper, another red baron. Right. We'll be looking at the federal Canadian budget, and we will be looking at the Ontario provincial budget, which is how we will be starting off our show today. You know, it seems that we've been airing the views of a growing number of leaders of the Freedom Party on the show lately, most recently those of here at Wilders of the Dutch Freedom Party, and of course more recently the leader of the British uh, Freedom Party, Paul Weston. So we thought it was time to have a local leader of a local Freedom Party again on the phone with us, and we have joining us on the line from, from his office, Paul McKeever, leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario. Paul, are you there? I'm here, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank Hi, Paul. So Hi, Paul, Robert. So, Paul, here we are, uh, what is it now, a week after the Ontario budget was released, or is it two weeks now? I can't even recall anymore. Um, and there doesn't seem to be an opposition out there. The Freedom Party of Ontario released an opposition budget before the government did, and it promised some remarkable things. That, I, that you know, you promise a balanced budget in 2012 and thereafter, competition and efficiency in health care, individual and corporate tax relief, merging all of the, our consumption taxes into a single CRA-collected tax, care protection for those of left lesser means, and turning the province into the number one jurisdiction for earning and production sounds like a pretty heavy agenda there. Is what you're saying even possible? Uh, absolutely, and it's all, uh, it all can be read online at uh, www.freedomparty.on.ca. But I think you've highlighted all the main points. Um, you know, uh, we're looking at three parties right now. They're not only, you know, ideologically the same, but uh, when we're talking about uh, a budget negotiation time, I'm seeing absolutely nothing there uh, among the three parties to balance the budget. Every single one of them 
uh, is leaving the balancing of the budget as a side issue or a non-issue. Uh, even while the uh, PCs, for example, Tim Hudak says, well, we have to balance the budget, he doesn't say by when or how, he has not one single proposal. And I've, I've itemized, let me just show you some of the things he's talking about. He, say, he says we should balance the budget, but he doesn't say how. He says reduce regulations, that won't save a penny at this point. He especially, especially hasn't even uh, told us what regulations he would reduce. Uh, he says he'd eliminate subsidies to uh, wind and solar. Well, that's not on on the budget. That's something that comes out of the consumer's pocket, um, if he could even achieve it, given that we have these long-term contracts. He, he says uh, he would uh, freeze public sector wages, but he doesn't say he would decrease them. So that won't save any money either. He says he would fix the arbitration system. Again, no, no uh, tag attached to that. But what he means is that in the future, wages won't rise as highly. And then finally, the only other item I can find that has an actual number attached to it is he'd like to reduce the corporation's tax from 11.5% to 10%. That would actually cause a decrease in the province's uh, revenue of $1.1 billion. In other words, he put us even into more deficit. So to take this fellow seriously as a deficit fighter is... is it's really a disservice, and this is why Freedom Party is sounding the red alert. We are in desperate trouble, and all three of the parties that have been elected to the legislature are, are either afraid uh, to do anything about it or, quite frankly, I believe, don't want to do anything about it. I was talking with a fellow last night. He's in teaching field, a teacher. And he is, his experience was that the uh, older generation within his own profession have essentially um, taken the benefits of the pension plan. They've gotten out early. And uh, there isn't enough money in the plan anymore so that the younger teachers will have anything. And he's seeing this right across the board, and I'm seeing it too. There's this generational war going on quietly, and all of the parties are on the voting side, if you will, the older side. Uh, I'm not saying that that's a, a, a good way to go. It's not. You shouldn't play generational warfare. But clearly they are. We've seen it also federally, where the uh, government is saying, well, we're going to uh, change the way the pensions are done, old age security, but but it doesn't affect you if you're uh, born, you know, before 1959. So uh, effectively, uh, if you are not born uh, before 1959, uh, you are going to get uh, nothing but a pocket full of debt. And all three of the parties in the legislature right now are bound and determined to make sure that they are the ones who uh, get the votes of the 60-some-odds and the 70-some-odds. If you look at the average turnout to one of these meetings, and I've been to many of them, you know, the all-candidates meetings, the people supporting the progressive conservatives are, by and large, uh, an elderly class who are just trying to make it uh, the last few years through their lives. That's why they can't seem to break through. They simply, the PCs simply don't have the numbers. They don't have any young people supporting them. It's an, it's an old, dying establishment. And it's one that, unfortunately, leaves us without an opposition in Ontario because everyone's trying to play to the same interests. Please let me keep my, my benefits. Uh, who cares about the young? Who cares about justice? Who cares about balancing the budget? That's someone else's problem. And nobody, nobody is stepping up and saying 2017, 2018, 2030, etc. is too late. They, they all think that we can just push this problem off. But I'll tell you right now, uh, Greece is just around the corner for Ontario if we keep playing this game. And Freedom Party thought it was absolutely necessary to put on the record that there is a way, an easy way, uh, to balance the budget. Not only that, but we've identified the, the problem, and that is health care is absorbing virtually all of the province's revenue. By 2030, by most estimates, there will be no money for anything except health care. Well, it's interesting you say that because, uh, you know, when you said that they don't want to actually... Um, you know, cut back on spending. 
isn't that really a consequence of their philosophies? I mean, it, that runs counter to their philosophies. It's cut back on spending, doesn't it? Oh, I, I think this, uh, you know, their, their primary philosophy right now is uh, who gets to uh, appeal to that greatest segment of the, voter, the voting block. I mean, the, the biggest voting block right now is baby boomers. Uh, they know that baby boomers are getting older. They're going to need old age security, health care, et cetera. And none of them, therefore, wants to be the one that says, hey, guys, I know you're entering the later stage of your life, but we've got to write the budget. They know that writing the budget would mean um, uh, taking the kinds of steps we're talking about in the Freedom Party budget, for example, uh, introducing competition and choice in health care, because that would take it off the budget and would, of course, alleviate the problem. But uh, there are too many uh, people in the people they perceive to be the voters uh, they perceive the voters to be 50-plus, 60-plus. Um, they're afraid of alienating them by proposing any change to the health care system that those people unfortunately believe uh, will be there to help them. And, and that's the really the worst part of all of this, that the very group that they're appealing to, the, the group that's trying not to offend, are the ones that are uh, going to find that they don't have the health care that they think they have. It's, a, it's, a, it's all theater, and it's, it's far too late in the game to be uh, playing around at theater. We really need to have a voice in the legislature that says, take budgeting seriously, and only Freedom Party is doing that. It's it's a very frustrating thing not to be in the legislature to voice these opinions, because when you're outside, the media uh, do not want to voice your opinions. I get the uh, I get responses from the MPPs, uh, you know, emails, but uh, nobody will come out in front and say, oh, by the way, read your read your budget, uh, etc. Uh, they are afraid of alienating what they perceive to be the voting bloc. Interesting you should say that, because I ho- I'm holding in my hand right now an April 3rd editorial by Greg Van Morsel of the London Free Press, and the, hel- and the headline reads, Health Costs Never Get Clear Debate. And he writes that no Ontario government has ever truly cut health care spending, only tried now and then to rein its rate of growth. And then he gives the McGuinty government credit for actually trying to rein in spending and uh, also points out how two-thirds of Ontarians completely underestimate, many of them wildly, quote, health care's share of what their provincial government spends. And, oh, he, yeah. and he concludes by saying, don't hold your breath waiting for these conversations over health care over the next election. Well, these budgets we have now are all, all threatening an election while we have a minority government, aren't they? Well, they are. And, and uh, in fact, you know, there's literally nothing in this budget that changes anything at all. They can talk about it being a stringent budget, a, a response to the, uh, the Drummond report, and et cetera. But in fact, it's as steady as she goes, change nothing. And, and the fact that neither McGinty nor, nor Hudak nor uh, uh, Horath want to change anything tells you that effectively they're acting as one party. In fact, let's face it, Hudak has stepped entirely outside of the limelight. He doesn't want to even involve himself because he has nothing to offer. And, I mean, here we go again. If the guy runs again, he's going to do the exact same thing. He's going to run a zero policy, zero plan campaign and hope that he just fills a vacuum magically. I think he's going to find, though, that even within his own party, he's going to be losing support. That party is going down the tubes faster. Than, I mean, I'm speaking to the PCs on an almost daily basis. and They're, they're outraged that their own party can't put something forward along the lines of Freedom Party. Hey, you don't like some of our, our, our proposals for balancing the budget? Fine, but let's at least talk about balancing the budget. And that's what I'm hearing uh, from the PCs and, and even others, even some liberals. You can't just uh, keep spending like drunken sailors, and yet none of them are, are, are proposing a single cut. I challenge anybody to tell me where the Hudak is going to make anything over a you know, half-billion-dollar uh, cut proposal to the budget. He's not doing it. He's a coward. 
and he's, he's, his cowardice is costing Ontario's future. So what would Freedom Party do about the health care situation? Well, the, the, that is the key problem. It's the key expenditure. Of course, so what it's you the have to do, and people always have this false dichotomy. Oh, well, you're suggesting privatizing the, the health care system. I'm not suggesting that at all. What I would suggest be done is that OHIP uh, be uh, put into a crown corporation. You could buy OHIP insurance if you wanted to buy it, but you would have the alternative choices of buying from other insurers instead or of not buying insurance and just paying as you go. A lot of people in the States do that um, uh, until they're older. And so uh, what the, the benefits of this, of course, are that, A, the health care pr- costs wouldn't necessarily go up. If you, In fact, if you look at the cost of health care per capita in Ontario, it's about $3,600. The price in the United States is about 4000 So we're talking something that's comparable anyway. Um, and that's for a system that in the United States we think is broken. It's, it's a highly politicized system. We're not looking for that. We want a system where you can actually buy the, the health care you want and only the health care you want, where the government doesn't force you to buy something you don't want. And that, we know, will take off the budget the most expensive and the most uh, quickly growing segment of the budget and will allow people to get a handle on the rest of the budget, to the legislature to get a handle on the rest of the budget. That's why... Uh, we are able to find these other other uh, steps to balance the budget in 2012 because you have to take care of the healthcare situation. You have to introduce the uh, the competition. Every report, and I'm, we mention about 20 of them in our budget, is saying that the current system is not sustainable. As one example, even if you reined in spending to something like 4.7% increase, uh, you could not balance the budget in Ontario uh, I mean, the the one report had uh, eight to fifteen percent HST increase would have to be imposed to balance the budget with, with the current system. So it's not sustainable. It's a complete joke. And until some people uh, within the legislature speak up, it's left to people like Freedom Party to sound the red alert. Uh, red alert. And I think that's what you know. We're having a dinner on the twenty first of April. Yeah, we're, we're getting the, people out. The party is uh, sounding a red alert officially, eh? <laughs> Pardon me. Sounding a red alert officially. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is the time to organize, to get your memberships in, to get your candidacy uh, in there. We could have an election any time. It's probably not going to happen this uh, this time out, but probably one year from now we'll be looking at an election. So Freedom Party is getting ready. Uh, you know, there's going to be a vacuum of ideas there. Those three parties are all moving in the same direction along with Lenin and all their, you know, ideological compadres. <laughs> and, uh, you know, finally uh, when people say, well, look, we need somebody who's saying something different, they're, they're going to realize that it, there's only a Freedom Party that's ever... You know, it's, that's the other thing. There's 21 parties in the province right now. There's three in the legislature, and the only one other than the government... Uh, putting in an opposition budget was Freedom Party of Ontario. And there's, only five, and there's only five parties, uh, I understand, that could have even formed a majority government last election, and Freedom Party was one of them. That's correct. Uh, there are only a handful. Uh, there's the PCs, NDP, Liberals, there's the Green Party, and there's Freedom Party. The rest are pretty pretty small pickings. I mean, most of them run two candidates. and they're kind of, I mean, I think my own opinion is that they get more benefit out of their tax credits than out of any political uh, uh, influ- influence they have. But, you know... Uh, we're taking it seriously, and uh, it's it's about time that uh, the other parties did too. And if they're not going to, then move out of the way. We're coming in now, Paul. All the details of uh, Freedom Party's um, um, opposition budget, if you want to call it that, are all online at www.freedomparty.on.ca. I understand, with all the facts and figures worked out right down to the to each issue. Is that correct? That's correct. All the numbers come from the actual numbers set out in the most uh, well, the most recent uh, statement of the actual figures, 
uh, is the same both in the budget uh, for 2012 and in, in the no- November statement. So our budget came out before the uh, official budget, uh, the 2012 budget from the Liberals. So our figures were based on the November 2011. But you can compare those figures. They're all uh, uh, properly uh, inputted from the, from the uh, official documents. And we've got link, links also to the various reports where people can confirm what we're saying about the unsustainability of the current method we have for uh, delivering health care. What I want to know, Paul, is why? Why in the world can you, who actually have another full-time job, do this work, which is, by the way, very detailed and uh, a solution that we need, put out an opposition budget when you're sitting outside of the legislature, and Tim Hudak, who's being paid to sit as the official opposition, can't even do it. Uh, I think. That, What's up with well, that guy? Uh, first of all, yeah, or any right. of them? They're all red. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you could do it if you tried, frankly. I don't think the man has the... Uh, I, I just haven't seen the vision, if you want to put it that way. I don't see it. But even if he even if he were capable, intellectually capable, I just don't think he would do it. And the, the, the reason is he honestly has utter contempt for the electorate. He really just believes that he doesn't need to put anything up, that, that he can just walk in with a blank check, people will sign it, and he'll take over the government. I frankly don't know why anyone like that would ever want to run anything. If they have no idea of what they would do with the government, how they would make things better, if they don't have the integrity and the courage to tell the people of Ontario what they would do with the power that they're trusted with, then, frankly, they should get out of the way. And, and I ha- have to wonder, what is the psychology of a person like that? Do you just want to sit in an office and call yourself premier for the sake of calling yourself premier? Is that what this has really come to in the province? And if so, that's why there's a problem here. These people are in it for their own egos. They're not in it to govern this pro- province rationally and to take care of the budget, which is, you know, as an opposition leader at this point in the game, not to be calling out the Liberals who are running a uh, what's going to be a $15 billion uh, deficit this year, next year, and for the foreseeable future. For them not to be taking a red alert themselves on, on the government is an outrage. I, you know, if there were recall in this province, and I'm not recommending there be, I, I'm, I'm in favor of elections taking care of that, but if there were, I would, I would recall the opposition <laughs> at this point for utter failure to do the job that they were uh, entrusted by Her, Her Majesty to do as the loyal opposition. They're not doing their job. They're sitting there. Tim, Tim Hudak's running around the province saying, well, uh, we're, we're all about jobs and, and the economy, but not a single idea is coming out of his mouth, and not a single comment is being made that the, that the McGuinty government um, ought to be cutting here, cutting there, cutting the other place. In fact, all he's talking about is cutting a, a tax by some minuscule amount. Hey, hey, I don't know if you heard, but Hudak was promising to create 200,000 jobs in the skilled trade sector because he's going to be working with the colleges to accomplish that. <laughs> well, this is, the, this is the biggest joke of you all. Any, any government person who tells you the government can create a job, the only way the government can create a job is by setting up a public sector job. Other than that, all the government can do is stop people from doing, uh, creating jobs because they regulate them out of existence. They set up monopolies, they, they create uh, barriers to trade, etc., Government doesn't create jobs. Government stops jobs from being created. And the only way this government can create jobs is by getting the hell out of the way. Well, thank you very much, Paul McKeever. It's about time we heard something that was different from the red smear that we're getting from all the other parties. I can't wait to listen to Paul McKeever once he gets elected and sits in that legislature question period. It'll be entertaining. The blood will spill. It will be a different kind (laughs) of red. Paul, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. And we'll be back after this break, continuing to talk about the red 
scourge on the federal level. Right, Robert? That's right. We'll be back right after this. Why are you working for the Alliance? Is it because you believe in what they're doing, or is it something else? I don't know what you're talking about. I think the two of us have been fighting each other so long that you've gotten used to us being on opposite sides. But I'm not the enemy this time, Jennifer. The Alliance is. The Alliance is your enemy, not mine. That's where you're wrong. Don't you see? You're no different than the slaves working in the ore processing center. In fact, you may even be worse off. At least they know they're prisoners. What if I am a prisoner? You don't have to be. Fight back. Come with me. You want me to join the rebellion? The way I see it, freedom is a whole lot better than slavery. alert and <laughs> good clip bob you know there's an old adage in uh, entertainment don't follow a don't follow a child act and don't follow an animal act because you're going to get upstage well i think i was just upstage by paul mckeever the freedom party because that was a pretty powerful statement well it is and if you see the uh, you know the opposition budget online when i saw that i said wow this has answers and they're understandable even the problem is described And no properly. one is picking him up. The media nope. aren't doing their job. Not the opposition aren't doing their job. The media aren't doing their job. Well, because uh, they're, they're this color too, red. They're red yeah. as well, yeah. <laughs> now let's just turn our attention now to a uh, federal budget, and we'll talk about how red the, the blue Tories are. You know, on several occasions on this show, I've explained how the Conservative Party and the Progressive Conservative Party before them are almost indistinguishable from the Liberals. I spoke from a personal perspective, having been a member of the Reform Party when it first opened up its membership to the East. Remember, it used to be mm -hmm. just a West-only party. And then it opens up its membership to the East. I think my membership card number said 79 or some <laughs> low, low <laughs> number like that. It was one of the first to jump on the bandwagon. I ran as a member of the Canadian Alliance in the election of 2000, alongside fellow candidate in London West and frequent guest on this show, Salim Mansour. Small world department, right? Yeah. And in 2003, the alliance merged with the PCs to eventually form the current Conservative Party of Canada. Now, for those of us who had hoped that we had rid the, of the rid this so-called conservative right of the stain of red that's been there since the days of R.B. Bennett, these fast, past few days, our hopes were dashed. On March 29th, Jim Flaherty presented the first budget of the new Conservative government since it's attained a majority. Very first budget, basically, that can be said to be truly a conservative budget. It was thought that this was it. This was the budget we'd all been waiting for. We could see real fiscal change, a slashing of the red tape, a burning of bloated bureaucracies, a gutting of useless federal departments, and a reduction in the deficit and the debt. This was the conservatives' chance, perhaps their only chance to do the necessary things and get away with them politically since... They'll be in power for another three years, guaranteed. And by that time, the electorate would have forgotten this budget totally. The electorate's memory is very, very short. And we've received instead a liberal budget. Whoop-dee-ding. 
<laughs> no change, no revolution, no guts, no glory. We received as Canadians what we've always come to expect from our overlords, more of the same red socialist conservatism that we received whenever conservatives gained power. We saw it in Brian Mulroney, who turned out to be one of the biggest spending prime ministers in history, next to Stephen Harper. We saw it in Joe Clark, who wore his red ideology on his sleeve proudly. And typical of any conservative, they give with one hand and take with the other. Or more appropriately, they give with one hand and stab you in the back and rob you <laughs> blind with the other. So what exactly does this budget give us? What's it a positive? First of all, you got the raising of the eligibility for old age security from 65 to 67. That's a good move. Better that such socialist handouts be eliminated altogether, but hey, baby steps. We got a reduction in the funding of the state broadcaster, the CBC. Now, this one I particularly enjoy is this propaganda machine is long overdue for a thrashing. But how much did they cut back? 10%. And at that rate, I'll be collecting old age security before I see this Marxist mouthpiece and their socialist agitprops gone. An elimination of federal public service jobs, which doesn't even approach the numbers that the conservatives increased the public service by in their preceding years in power. Although, I'll take what I can. Now, what does this budget take from us? Well, for starters, how about a $21.1 billion deficit? How's that for a conservative budget under Harper? So, $21.1 billion. Dollars. Yes, it does, actually. <laughs> I think that's my point here. No tax relief whatsoever. No program elimination except perhaps for, now get this, the Assisted Human Reproduction Canada Agency. Well, whoopee-ding. Who's ever even heard of that? You know? I was just about to sign up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and continued involvement in the provincial affairs of education and health care. Totally provincial matters, and of course we got the federal government under Harper still sticking their hands in that pie. Michael Dentant of the National Post described the budget as humdrum and tepid, and Stephen Harper as a moderate, not unlike Jean Chrétien. QMI agency called his budget Trudeau-esque. You know, let's go back in history a little Trudeau bit Trudeau-esque, don't say that. I yeah. You know what I remember of the Trudeau years? 22% first mortgage interest rates. Time to get a house. <laughs> <laughs> to own one, you can't Lock have, in you can't right have a mortgage on it. Yeah. it was, let's go back in history as we talk about conservative Prime Minister R.B. Bennett, who, while claiming to fight the communist movements in 1932, actually acted like a Marxist. Now, this is the start of the conservatism movement in Canada, basically, if you ask me. R.B. Bennett. R.B. Bennett increased public spending to try and spend his way out of the Depression, not unlike Harper's attempt to spend his way out of the past recession with stimulus spending. That's where you rob Joe the plumber to make a job for Frank the electrician. Mm -hmm. You know, He created progressive income taxation, which we still have under Harper. He created minimum wages, an intrusion into provincial territory, by the way, which we still have in every province. He created the unemployment insurance scheme, which Harper continues. He created government health insurance, again, a provincial jurisdiction, which Harper continues via the Canada Health Act. He expanded the pension program, which Harper continues. He created the Bank of Canada, which we still have under Harper. You know, I'll give Harper this one thing. It was R.B. Bennett who created the monopsony. <laughs> I knew I was going to stumble over yeah. this word. Monopsony. 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 That's where you have one buyer instead of mm -hmm. one seller. Uh, one, yeah, one buyer instead of one provider, right. which is a monopoly. So you got a monopsony, Canadian wheat board, which Harper just abolished. That one thing I'll give him. However, 
In this address to the nation by Bennett, we can see a Stephen Harper or a Jean Chrétien or a Joe Clark or a Pierre Trudeau or any other Canadian prime minister since Bennett. And I'm quoting from Bennett here. In the past five years, great changes have taken place in the world. The old order is gone. We're living in conditions that are new and strange to us. Canada on the dole is like a young and vigorous man in the boorhouse. If you believe that things should be left as they are, you and I hold contrary and irreconcilable views. I am for reform. And in my mind, reform means government intervention. It means government control and government regulation. It means the end of laissez-faire. Now, that was from the Conservative Prime Minister, R.B. Bennett. And that particular sentiment could be expressed by any of the past prime ministers since him. This is the root of Canadian conservatism. Socialist programs, Marxist ideology, the end of laissez-faire, Harper and this humdrum stay-the-course budget is continuing the tradition of his red conservative predecessors. It's time, thank you Paul McKeever for introducing this, it's time for Freedom Party of Canada. And with that, we're going to take a little break here and be back with more of our Red Alert. Excellent. So as I said, Cathy, for whatever reason, the Prime Minister saw fit to invite one into the Cabinet and, well, here one is. Isn't it a terrific responsibility? Well, I suppose if one chooses to dedicate one's life to public service, the service of others, responsibility is just something one has to accept. But all this power! <laughs> no, I know. Frightening sometimes. But it also makes one very humble, Cathy. There one sits, at the Cabinet table, number 10 Downing Street, uh, just one last question. As a cabinet minister, with hmm? all this power, what have you personally achieved? Achieved? Oh, well, all sorts of things. Membership of the Privy Council, membership of the Party Policy Committee. <laughs> no, I mean things you've actually done that makes life better for other people. Makes life better? Yes. <laughs> for other people? <laughs> well, must be a number of things. After all, that's what one's job is all about, isn't it? 18 hours a day, seven days a week. Could you give me one or two examples, though? It makes it a bit boring otherwise. Examples? <laughs> Difficult to know where to start. So much of government is collective decisions. All of us together, best minds in the country, hammering it out. Yes, but what is it you'll look back on afterwards and say, I did that? You know, like a writer can look at his books. Government is a complex business, Catherine. <laughs> so many people have to have their say. These things take time. Rome wasn't built in a day. Of course, the my good heavens is at the time. I really must be in my boxes. You'll have to excuse me, Cathy. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's such fun having this little talk. And you'll let me approve the article before you print it, won't you, as we agreed? Fine. Bye. Bye. Right, kid. That's the last interview I give for a school magazine. She asked some very difficult questions. <laughs> Just innocent. She was assuming there was some moral basis to your activities. Well, there is. Oh, Jim, don't be silly. that 
You hear that? Viva Clemente, Viva Clemente, Viva, 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 Viva Clemente! Viva! Viva! To the revolution. Uh, do you know do you know why I laugh I laugh because there is so much so much stuff bubbling inside of me and I didn't know in the beginning I didn't know when this moment would happen how I would react to it what I would do if I would drink or laugh or get drunk or I didn't know What makes a man drunk? Wine or that mob screaming his name? I'm going to make a toast to you. To the four lieutenants of the revolution, to the new heads of the government. Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can call us at 519-661-3600 to join in our conversation or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. You can also find all of our archived episodes on our website and with um, also a lot of video that mm-hmm. I'm putting up there as well so of some of our guests and our shows at uh, justrightmedia.org. Did you recognize the voice of that dictator? I remember that episode of Twilight Zone. Yes. That was Peter Falk. Peter Falk, Columbo, yes. Yeah, that was a great episode. It was, too. He's, he's a great actor. Mm-hmm. It was, yes. So we were just talking before the break about the red alert that this mm-hmm. country, this province, really has to take up and notice what's going on because we're going to be in for some really troubled times. Make Greece look pale a lot. Of, a lot of people don't recognize red when they see it, and of course, that's an alliteration to an mm-hmm. ideology, which I'll get into a little later. But yeah, actually, yeah. I'm going to jump into that as well because okay. red is always associated with communism. And uh, my little segment here is going to be talking about Karl Marx and a bit of history, so that we can identify red <coughs> when we see it and understand sure. the historical context of what's going on here. No, let's start off with Karl Marx's theory of history. Uh, it's one of class struggle goes something like this. From primitive communism, characterized by egalitarian hunting and gathering, and I'll return to that a little later, man progressed to barbarism, the rule of chiefs, to a slave society where a slave class with slave classes in agriculture, to feudalism, to capitalism, to socialism, the dictatorship of the proletariat brought about by violent revolution, and then ultimately communism, or a classless society. Now, of course, while the fundamental philosophy of Marx was wrong, in at least this one sense, that it requires the changing of the nature of man, i.e. that of being from a, a rational individual to being a soulless cog in a materialistic universe, his class struggle view of history is not far from the mark. We've indeed progressed as he has envisioned, if progress is the word I want to use in such a in such a case. He believes that capitalism was a a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, which is destined to be overthrown by the proletariat or working class, once that working class gained a consciousness of its class. Although he did not support trade unions as such, he did believe that it was the role of trade unions to train the proletariats for the coming revolution, which he thought of had to be violent, 
because he said now, that the capitalists aren't going to give these things up quietly. The bourgeoisie, that would be what in our terminology? The middle class? Uh, no, that would be like the uh, the capitalists, the owners, the, uh, the the people who are, you know, anybody except Karl Marx, <laughs> <laughs> who, by the way, was dirt poor for a long time. Um, it's it's the capitalists, the bourgeoisie, the upper class, right? Now, it all sounds too much like exaggeration, doesn't it? All this hyperbole, this... Uh, the mere mention of the words like socialism and communism and capitalism in polite society today is enough to have you branded as radical or an alarmist. And we've been called that, alarmists and mm -hmm. radicals, because we use terms like that. But understanding the history... It's waving the red flag in front of people, if to, to use the analogy. Yeah, nobody wants, nobody wants right. a red flag waved in front of them. That's right. You know, if they and think they're swimming along hunky-dory, they don't. Exactly. You know, but we have to understand the history of these concepts. It's essential to understanding the path which Marx set the world upon, and it's reaching its conclusion. Marx thought it would take thought it would take a violent revolution to overthrow capitalism, and attempts at that were and have been made, and still being made today. But the real success of socialism, if I again could use the word success and socialism in the same sentence, is that it takes it has taken over the world gradually. The year following Marx's death, the Fabian Society was formed in Britain. Its purpose was to advance the principles of democratic socialism via gradualist rather than revolutionary means. Rather like the frog in the pot we've talked about, I think, mm -hmm. in, in, on the radio before, Bob. You put a frog in a pot of boiling water, it jumps out. You put a frog in a pot of cool water and it gradually raises the temperature. It'll sit there until it boils to death. Well, we're the frogs in the pot, seemingly oblivious to the gradual changes in the history of class struggle occurring all around us. Every new government program, every time union leaders tre are treated with respect by the media and allowed to spew their mindless dribble and hatred over the airwaves without question, every time the police turn a blind eye to union violence, every time a politician promises you something to be paid for by your children's taxes or through inflation, that's turning up the pot. Mm -hmm. under our feet, our frog. You know, we're the frogs, they're turning up the water. We don't even notice it because it's gradual. And here's some examples from recent events. Or just one example. Jim Balsilli of RIM, Research in Motion. Let's call him the capitalist, right? He leads the Center for International Governance Innovation, a private research institute. Now, Mr. Balsilli wished to donate $30 million to York University to establish an international law program with 10 research chairs and 20 graduate scholarships in exchange for being able to advise on the direction of the research and the hiring of the researchers. Just advice. That's all. The faculty members of York are members of the Canadian Association of Universities Teachers, headed by Jim Turk. Let's call him the socialist. Mm -hmm. Mr. Turk and his association served notice to three universities that due to concerns over academic freedom, it intends to censure them for their collaborations with Jim Balsilli, the capitalist, and his private think tank. CIGI has no business at the table deciding what areas the chairs will focus on and who should be retired, much less have a veto, Mr. Turk said. By the way, allegations, which aren't even correct. And using Marxist terminology... Quote, capitalists have no business giving us money it stole from the masses and expect to dictate how the proletari proletariat spends its money. Unquote. York University capitulated, and they rejected the offer. 
the uh, association, the socialists, won the battle defeating the aims of the filthy capitalist Jim Balsillie. A bloodless Fabian battle designed to keep the classes separate so as not to confuse their distinct consciousness. There was, of course, nothing wrong with the arrangement since the government does exactly what Mr. Turk feared from Mr. Balsillie. It doles out billions yearly to universities with countless thousands of conditions attached on hiring and teaching and curriculum. What we had here, however, was an opportunity for one class, the proletariat, to dictate to the other class, the capitalists. This is just one example from one small corner of our world, just this last week, of the kind of Fabian battles being won by the socialists to defeat the capitalists to use those Marxist buzzwords, those red flags. Mm -hmm. Electromotive diesel was another one. And, and if you think in that case, the capitalists won, think again. How has the attitude, attitude of the people in London and Ontario changed towards electromotive diesel and its owner Caterpillar? It's changed for the worse. And that's a victory for the socialists. The capitalists are shown as being heartless and greedy, and when enough of us think that they'll finally have their day when there won't be a capitalist left and they will have the classless communist society. A return to the hunter-gathering society of old. That's yeah. their goal. Talk about the law of the jungle. It's right. exactly it's, it's, right. It's totally the reverse of what they say it is. You know, socialists steal from other people. They don't earn it. <laughs> so give me a capitalist any day because at least he's in a voluntary, forced to be in a voluntary environment. Imagine turning down $30 million, creating 30 jobs, 30 research positions, simply because the guy wanted to advise on where his money was being spent. Well, that was a political struggle, a class struggle, pure Marxism, right under our noses, yet the media and the pundits out there don't describe it as such, because those words are red flag words. That's right. They're Marx, uh, they're, they're like... Um, uh, who was you know, that? McCarthyism. You know, That's what yeah. people say. Oh, you're just being a McCarthyist. Sorry, no, this is happening day by day. That's and right. That's where, and why do you think we have this red alert? Why do you think we're in the state we're in? Why do you think that Greece is collapsing because well, that's of this? A little bit of what I'm going to be talking about after this next break. When we come back, we will continue with our red alert and maybe think about a few things that might work to help part the Red Sea. Oh, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Take it away. Christo. Sir? How many prisoners are there? Here in the capital? Well, uh, a thousand. Have them shot. Immediately. But the trials... We don't have time for trials. What are you? Some kind of a chameleon? What is this ease with which you strip off one color and put on another? You turn my stomach. anymore, Jordy? Not without burning out the tractor beam emitter. The circuits are already beyond the thermal limit. Delta V is 92 meters per second. The mass is too great. We are having an effect, but it is negligible. What is that? Unable to identify source. Impulse engines passing safety limits. We're seconds from automatic shutdown. Reduce engine power. Tractor beam off. Lieutenant Warp, what the hell did the sensors say? The sound is not registering, Commander. Q. Red alert.
like the like Jordy on that clip, you know, the mass is too great to move, right? That's how people feel a lot about the situation we're in today under our uh, under our flood of not only the red flood but red ink that it, that comes along with it. Interesting that they happen to be the same color. And that's a thing about red, you know. Uh, red of course is a color that we we choose to to represent communism, socialism, and basically state control, government spending. And today's reds come in a variety of colors, not just in shades of red, but in orange and green and even in blue. Even as Rome burns, they continue to call for more of their red menace, more state control, more state spending, higher taxation despite what you hear, more bans and prohibitions. And they're pinkos, one and all, with only their party colors left to distinguish them. And of course, that doesn't distinguish them in terms of what they are actually all about. Could go through the symptoms of what this is, but here's what's important to realize. It is really critically important to understand that the crisis that faces us is not the result of mismanagement or incompetence or error. You know, and I'm not saying there isn't a lot of that to go around, but it's the consequence of the very purposeful action of the other parties whose red philosophies cannot possibly lead to any other kinds of results. It's the consequence of their political success, that word you were talking about, Robert, that you shouldn't associate with red. It is the consequence of the fact that there has been no opposition, political or otherwise, uh, you know, either in Ontario or in Canada or anywhere, just starting now with Freedom Party, as we heard from Paul McKeever earlier on. And of course, you know, those who dismiss the charge that all the parties are red are really doing so at their own peril. Uh, how can I put this? The other parties are red, and it's long past time for everyone to sound this alert. Red, of course, is the color metaphor understood to represent the left. That's what we're talking about all the time. Liberals, New Democrats, Socialists, Communists. But conservatives and other sundry parties have escaped this smear of red due to their consistent misrepresentation of themselves as the opposition, both politically and philosophically. And, uh, you know, since the Liberal Party already has a claim on the color, there just isn't enough red to go around for all of the other political parties, so they have to pick different shades and sometimes things that are not even close to that shade. So, one thing that came to mind, uh, and I had to bring this up, this was great. Did you see this cover of... The Economist here, Robert. Rather red-looking. Very red. And on the front page, it reads, The Rise of State Capitalism. Can you imagine? It's no such thing. Well, that made me see red right away. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently, I'm not the only one. And I have to say, two thumbs up for the National Post Terrence Corcoran, who so correctly pointed out in his March 2012 Financial Post magazine editorial that the red menace is now appropriating the word capitalism as the word to define itself. Can you well, imagine? it's actually thought that Marx came up with the term, or <coughs> well, first put it into wide as use. A, as, a, as a pejorative, of course. Mm-hmm. But, and he, he says, keep capitalism out of it, reads the headline with the subheading, Orwellian doublethink is subverting our greatest economic idea. Of course, it's more than an economic idea, it's a moral idea. And um, so Corcoran was reacting to The Economist magazine's January 21st front cover story, The Rise of State Capitalism. And he said the term state capitalism was, quote, ideological sabotage, end quote. And he writes, Capitalism was originally a derisive term invented in the 19th century to undermine its core principle, private ownership of the means of production, which is capital. 
free private capital along with property rights, individual freedom, free trade, and free markets were considered hallmarks of an evil social order that socialists and communists sought to overthrow. Capitalism survived the attacks and came to be revered as a systemic source of global wealth and prosperity. The fusion of statism and capitalism conveys the idea that state control of the means of production is morally and economically equivalent to private control of the means of production in a market economy. In other words, we're all capitalists now, including politicians, thugs, and dictators who destroy capitalism by creating state corporations. There's an accurate name for government control and regulation of private property and industry in the national interest, state corporatism. In Italy, it was called fascism. Politicians have been trying forms of corporatism for more than a century, with far too many people willing to play along. Would today's bankers fly to meet Lenin? Probably, but the least we can do is write the language to describe it. Capitalism, it isn't. <laughs> One of his best. Thank you, Terence Corcoran. I Excellent. couldn't have said it any better or louder myself. And with that in mind, I want to come back to the couple of things that were said here in the Ontario scene by Andrea Horwath and um, the other fellow, Hudak, the two, two H's. Uh, you know, Horwath was asked on a radio show the other day, basically what she, how she was going to handle the Ontario budget. And you know what her basic response was? It was, make the rich pay. Like right out of the Marxist playbook that you were just talking about. Yep. Remember the first time I ran politically, federally, um, I had to sit beside the communist candidate. I think her name was Susan Bolanda at the time, back in the 70s. And the first thing that came out of her mouth was, make the rich pay. And then I heard three more candidates saying it in a fancier way. And Horwath, here's what she literally said on the radio the other day. I, I, I transcribed it. Quote, those very, very wealthiest can pay two percentage points more, and that'll give us a chance to give everybody else a break by taking the HST off home heating, shoring up childcare spaces, making sure that folks with disabilities have some dignity. People generally see that as, fair, as a fairness measure, and that's why we put it forward. There are other ideas that, that we have that we'll be bringing forward in a little while. And, of course, she got challenged and uh, basically saying, well, wouldn't that encourage more spending, giving, giving the government more money? And she says, well, on the contrary. In fact, what it does, it ends up providing us with more revenue. But the re that revenue is specifically coming from those who have the most amount of capacity to be able to give a little more. And it's going to go to everyday, f and it's going to give everyday folks a break. And that's a simple enough fairness measure that I think people have long been waiting for. We need a budget that puts the family to the top of the agenda. That sounds like the conservatives <laughs> talking, doesn't it? Yes. The fact that families are struggling and can't make ends meet is what is needed to be addressed. And we found a way to address it that exact actually increases our fiscal capacity in the province. It doesn't decreases which is about as wrong or as left as you can get it. And, you know, then to add insult to injury, she says that the message Ontarians were giving to the parties in Ontario because of the minority government was that the parties should work together. And I'm thinking, yikes, 
That's exactly what they've been doing. For as long as I've been active in politics, they've been working together. If they weren't working together, then there'd be you know, some kind of opposition in Queen's Park to the utter insanity that's been going on there because they're all drinking the same red wine from the same bottle, which has been poisoned by all this Marxist claptrap, Robert. It's terrible. When somebody says, I'm just going to tax you because you've got the money, there's no reason for that. No, you know, say say two percent, right? That's so immoral. I, I, to 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 say that publicly and not and not have rocks thrown at you scares me. And that tells me where the public is at. The public is also red. The media is very red. They don't understand the destructive nature of their ideas. They really don't. You know, my parents came from Europe, from Germany, where the Germans all believed in this stuff too. And 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 look what happened in Germany. Mm-hmm. But they didn't see it coming. They all thought Hitler was great before the Holocaust. And we all think Horwath is great, too. Now she says yeah, 2%. Why 2%, Miss Horwath? Why not 10? Why not 50? Yeah, wh- why, why not 100? Why not? why not line them up against the wall and do what you really want to do to the rich? Because that's what this is leading to. Well, well that's exactly it. And, and just the moral bankruptcy in, in, in the basics of it, right? And, you know... They want to tax the over-rich. I don't know. That's people who make over $500,000 a year, an extra 2%. Why not, you know, why not go for that, uh, what are they calling that club now, the over 100,000 club that's mostly government bureaucrats and government people? Mm-hmm. I mean, is this just another way of getting back government taxes? I don't know. But she doesn't have any any kind of answers here. And to say that this is fairness, it's egalitarianism. There's nothing fair about taking money from a person who earned it and giving it to someone who didn't. In fact, you're hurting the person you're giving the money to just as much as you're hurting the person you're taking it from. Because what you end up creating is, well, a society like the one we're heading into, the the Greece of the future. And look at what's happening in Greece. Look what's happening around the world. Are people saying, give me austerity? No, they're screaming because the people we see screaming are the people on the benefits end. You know, they're not the people on the paying end. Where are where are all of them hiding in their basements? Are they not coming out? Like, are they so afraid of this red menace that that they they're afraid to to say what they want to say? You, you see where I'm going with all of this. So, and then then again, you've got <coughs> Tim Hudak who thinks he's going to solve a debt crisis and a job crisis with all of his nonsense. He's going to create all these jobs and create jobs in the private sector. I mean. You know, if you, un- if you understood epistemology alone, you'd understand how, how contradictory that was, right? The government's going to create jobs in the private sector. Those are two non, non-sequiturs. You're either a government job or you're a private That's job. That's Orwellian. It is. You, you can't create a job. And, of course, he's going to say, well, we're just going to get out of the way. We're going to stand out of the way. And by doing that, we're going to create 200,000 jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And so he thinks that the three things are jobs, cut taxes, and better economy. But those are all wishes. Those aren't plans. And he's not doing cutting taxes, and he hasn't got a plan to, to, to cut a job or create a job. He had a lot to cut them, maybe. But that's where we're going. And I think that the time has long passed that the red alert is sounded and that more of us become aware of it. Because unless we are, we have no way to even understand the nature of what it is we're fighting. And if we don't understand that, we won't know what the proper thing is to do to counter it. That's pretty well all I can say on that. So fly all the colors you want, but always remember, some things are black and white. And with that, 
we're going to continue our journey in the right direction as we continue and uh, our whole journey. We hope you'll be back with us next week when we return for another round of A Different Color Than Red. See you then. Fade into color Color into black and white Under the clothes, Everything will be Does it say what happened to the rest of the cats? Holy wars. There were thousands of years of fighting, Dave, between the two factions. What two factions? The ones who believed the hat should be red and the ones who believed the hat should be blue. Do you mean they had a war over whether the donut diner hats were red or blue? Yeah. Most of them were killed fighting about that. Staff, really, innit? You're not kidding. They were supposed to be green. (laughs) 